And in this portion of WGTD's morning show, I am very excited to reconnect with best-selling author Steve Barry. His suspense novels have been uh, snapped up by readers uh, both here and abroad, and I've had the pleasure of speaking with Steve Barry on a couple of different occasions on the morning show, most recently about The Last Kingdom. And uh, today we talk about his most recent novel and his most recent Cotton Malone novel. I believe it is his 18th, and it's called The Atlas Maneuver. And is, as is so often the case with the novels of Steve Barry, this is based to some extent on the historical past, but with plenty of fiction woven in. And we have a fascinating story about, in a sense, plundered treasure from the Second World War and greedy modern hands grappling for that, for that treasure set against the backdrop of, of, of this modern world, which includes Bitcoin, and uh, which complicates matters in so many respects in terms of wealth, how it is transferred, how it is stolen, and so on. A fascinating story, new and yet also, in, a, in the best sense of the world, old-fashioned. Old Again, the book is The Atlas Maneuver, and it is published by Grand Central. And Steve Barry, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. I have loved reading this book so much. One of the things that is intriguing about this, and it's true about a, a lot of your books, is that uh, you are a student of history and you like to weave real history into these novels. And yet there is the matter of much of it being fictional as well. And uh, I appreciate the, the author's note at the end of this novel in which you really clarify for us this really happened, this really didn't. This person really lived, this person is, I have created, and so on. Help us understand the process by which you decide, I'm going to draw upon this from the reality of history, but this part I'm going to concoct or create. And what, what ends up deciding what parts of, of, of your novels is based in real history versus springing from your own imagination? Well, I keep it about 90% to reality. That's one of the rules I stick to. So I keep it as close to reality as I can. But I'm writing a novel, so I'm entertaining people. So I have to trip it up. So that's my 10%. And that's where the writer's note you mentioned in the back tells you where that happens so that you'll know what's real and what's not. This book <coughs> deals with a subject that has long fascinated me, and that's Bitcoin, as you mentioned. Um, I dare say most people have no idea how Bitcoin works. I know I did not. I didn't know the first thing about it, but I was fascinated by it. So I spent 18 months learning all I could. And I think this is the very first thriller in which Bitcoin is not just mentioned, but it is it is the plot. Bitcoin is the plot of the novel. And we, uh, we take that something from the past, that something lost, that's something forgotten that's in all of my books. And in this case, it's a uh, World War II treasure called Yamashita's Gold, which was hidden all across the Philippines at the end of World War II. And we weave that together with an ongoing war between the CIA and the world's oldest bank. And Bitcoin is right in the middle of this. And my hero, Cot Malone, gets caught up in this war between these two factions. And... Um, it's a fun romp. It goes, you know, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and then into the mountains of Morocco. 
But along the way, the reader's going to learn a little bit about Bitcoin and how it works and the concept and, and some interesting things about money that I, that I think a lot of people might be surprised about. Right. The book begins, as uh, I think, where it needs to begin on June 4th, 1945, and you really take us into the vaults, 175 uh-huh. of them in all in the mountains of that the works. Philippines, uh, where the Japanese uh, sequestered all kinds of plundered treasure, I mean, and, and, a, and a staggering amount of it. And the way that they went about this, the methodical way in which they went about hiding this is, is really quite fascinating. And explain to our listeners what their intention was, first of all, in doing this, and, and what, what the hopes were that what, what someday might happen with this plundered treasure. Well, we hear a lot about Nazi plunder when they plundered in World War II with monuments men and all of that. We heard a lot about that, but the Japanese were actually much more astute and much more efficient at it than the Nazis were. They plundered Southeast Asia and China for billions and billions of dollars in in gold, and that gold was supposed to go back to Japan. It never made it, though. Some made it, but most of it did not. It got held up in the Philippines when the Americans finally, you know, you know, pushed further and further to the west and cut off the sea routes from the Philippines to Japan. So General Yamashita was uh, told to bury the treasure, bury it all over the all over uh, the Philippines. But you know, secure a way that we can come back after we after the war's over. If we win, we'll come back and get. It. If we lose, we'll make sure we get the Philippines in any peace that we negotiate, so we can come back and get it. Well, he did that. He hit it uh, all over, 175 different underground caches all over the Philippines. But, of course, it was an unconditional surrender. They did not have the ability to come back to get it. But after the war, American intelligence agencies found out about the gold. The story is is that they dug some of it up, and they got a good chunk of it out of the ground, took it and put it into European vaults all, you know, all across uh, Europe, and used it to finance clandestine operations that some say are still being financed to this day by it. It's something called the Black Eagle Trust. And that was uh, that fascinated me. You know, did the, did the OSS do this? Did the CIA, who took over for the OSS in 1948, continue it? Uh, and is that really true? And so all of this weaves into the novel, all of this, this, this possibility of what happens. There's many books written on this, and nobody really knows for sure, and that's what makes it fun for me. Since no one knows for sure, I can do what I want to with it. Absolutely. <laughs> one, one thing you mentioned, maybe I think this is in the writer's note, but we also kind of learn about this at other points, <laughs> is that, that the, the Japanese were so careful that they also left behind certain written records about these 175 vaults, but in special code that no one is able to fully decipher. So even though that written record of where these vaults are uh, has been preserved, uh, people still have not been able to sort of make heads or tails of it, and that, in a sense, deepens the mystery still further. Very much so. We know some of the vaults were found, for fact, for a fact, but the majority of them have never been found, and a lot of the clues were left in the rocks, the trees, all over on the on the earth itself. There was one map. You're right; it's coded. No one can really decipher it. And to this day, 
you know, that gold still stays in the ground there, and it and it probably will stay there forever since they hit it really well. Hmm. And uh, you know, that's a very rugged, wooded area and mountainous area where where it was hidden at. Hmm. So we'll never know for sure. One of the points of interest in this novel is uh, what you describe in the novel as uh, the Bank of St. George in Luxembourg. And this might be the first time I've read a book that where any of it was set in the tiny nation of Luxembourg. And I believe from the author's note that this is, this is a bank that actually does not uh, any longer exist. But I think you do such a beautiful job of creating this this bank that has been around for generation upon generation, and we can well imagine that such an institution might uh, have in its history something as dark as this. Yes, it's really interesting. The Bank of St. George was created uh, around the 14th century, uh, and it existed up until 1805 when Napoleon disbanded it. In the novel, I just had it, instead of being disbanded, I just had it moved. It moved from Italy, where it was, uh, to uh, Luxembourg, and I just kept it going. But it did exist for about 500 years, and it was the world's oldest continuously operating bank. And so I thought it'd be cool. We'll just we'll incorporate it and use it and keep it alive in Luxembourg. Mm. And of course, uh, at the heart of all of this, trying to sort out who is after what, is uh, is your main character, uh, uh, Cotton Malone. And one of the uh, facets of, 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 of what makes him very good at what he does as a trained intelligence officer is his uh, eidetic memory. Uh, explain to our listeners what this is and why you wanted uh, Cotton Malone to possess this particular gift. Well, I gave it to him early on because who wouldn't want to have a, a memory for details? You, you really don't call it photographic memory. That's not that's not a good way to refer to it. They really call it didactic memory, and it's it's just the ability to retain details. You remember an awful lot of things. Most of us, you know, hear things, see things. We retain the big picture and a few details, but not all of them. People with this particular gift, and there are people that have it, can remember numbers, dates, orders of things, specific everything. And he has that because I thought it'd be cool to give it to him and be cool for an intelligence operative to have that. So that's one of the traits that kind of sets uh, Cotton apart uh, from some of the other uh, thriller uh, protagonist uh, that other writers have is, is he has that eidetic memory that he can that he can recall those details. And uh, he, of course, uh, we're not going to give this away, but by the end of the novel, we learn something very striking about his personal life, and uh, which opens up some really interesting possibilities uh, for the future. Last quick question: You've mentioned the fact that Bitcoin uh, uh, is 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 a big part of this novel, and of course, Bitcoin is is something quite new and. Chances are a fair number of your readers will not have any idea, really, of what Bitcoin is. Uh, Do you feel like you were taking a risk in uh, adding that particular element to the proceedings? Or maybe it was a fun challenge for you to kind of weave that into the novel in a way where it's going to make sense, even to those who are uninitiated. 
it, the second one, it, I, it was I did it intentionally because I wanted to teach the reader about Bitcoin. I didn't know anything about it, so I learned about it. And so this novel, when you get done reading this novel, you're going to understand Bitcoin. I think you're going to have a full understanding not only of the actual Bitcoin, how it works and how it's done, but also there's a flaw in the Bitcoin system. There's an actual flaw that's in there that is a little bit of a problem and. I, t- I point that out and, of course, exploit it in the novel. So you're going to learn mm. you're going to learn a good bit about it. And I did that on purpose. I wanted people to become uh, a, uh, you know, a little bit more knowledgeable about it. It's a fascinating subject. It's a fascinating concept. And it's not going anywhere. It's here to stay. So we need to learn about it. And since I have about a minute or so on, on the clock, I'm going to ask you, actually ask you one other thing, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Back to the story back in Japan and the the, the uh, final uh, fate of these vaults and the final demise of General uh, uh, Yamashita. Yeah. And this was a case, you tell us, in which uh, he was held responsible for the atrocities committed by soldiers under his command, even though these may have been atrocities he knew nothing about or did not order or could not have prevented. And your novel right. mentions that this is a very serious precedent that has carried on for decades in in the wake of this. This is something I really didn't know anything about, and it's a, kind of a fascinating and disturbing thing to think about. Yeah, it's one. It's the concept that came out of the war when Yamashita was tried. He was tried very quickly and hung very quickly because they wanted to keep him quiet because they were after these underground vaults and they didn't want him talking about them or speaking about them since he knew all about them. So they got rid of him pretty fast. But the Supreme Court of the United States heard the case, and they created the principle that, yeah, a commanding officer is responsible for what his troops does, whether he knows about it or not, whether he ordered it or not, or whether he had any knowledge or anything about it. And that's a concept that has kept forward in war crimes trials up to this day. Yes, it, it came from uh, United States versus Yamashita. The book, again, is The Atlas Maneuver. It is published by Grand Central, the author Steve Barry. Steve Barry, congrats on yet another fantastic novel. I loved it start to finish and learned a lot. And uh, I enjoyed speaking with you today on The Morning Show. Thank you so much and best wishes to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.